Hello, and welcome to the Sola Gratia Sermons Podcast. I'm so glad that you decided to drop in today. I pray that you enjoy this sermon and that God, through His Word, convicts you, encourages you, and edifies you. I also pray that this sermon increases your knowledge of God and grows your love for Him and His Scripture. God bless you and keep you. Soli Deo Gloria. you'd open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 is where we'll be today. I've entitled this sermon, In Him, By Him, Through Him, and For Him. You may be familiar with that phrasing. Uh, It's used uh, more than once um, in various forms in the New Testament. And uh, what I want to be discussing today is the what's called the preeminence of Christ, the preeminence of Christ or the superiority of Christ, some would say, or some say the supremacy of Christ. All those words are kind of pointing to the same thing, right? So we'll be honing in on verses uh, 15 through 20, specifically dealing with the preeminence of Christ. So as you're turning there, uh, who is Jesus, right? Who is Christ? Uh, That's a question that is difficult to answer, it seems, nowadays, right? Um, For many people uh, throughout the world, they've got different answers, different ideas of who he may may be. I found some uh, quite entertaining videos on YouTube uh, just searching, who is Jesus? And uh, I found a couple videos that, that were actually pretty good, some evangelism videos of uh, some some Christians that were going out on the streets of New York, uh, witnessing to people and and just asking them simple questions, you know, kind of Ray Comfort style, if you're familiar with Ray Comfort. Um, so the, on the streets of New York, they're asking people, who is Jesus? Not only who is he, who is he to you? Right. And the, the answers, as you might imagine, range all over the place. They range from a historical figure. He's not a historical figure. He's just a myth. Uh, others include a selfless person, or just a normal person, or just a man. Uh, some say the Son of God. Some say not the Son of God. <laughs> it's just all over the place. You've got, oh, he was a uh, David Copperfield of his day, or he was a marketing genius, one one woman said. And uh, some would say, he's my Lord and Savior, one individual. But then that same person then said, Jesus is, well, he's just the symbol of ultimate forgiveness and love, just the symbol of it. Some say he was God's son. Some say he was not God's son. Some say, oh, he was God's son, but so was Gandhi and Muhammad. You know, we're all just God's children. He is someone I pray to, one woman said. Some said Jesus is God. Now we're getting somewhere. Or some say Jesus just talked to God, but he's not God. Or he became God because of what he did. One said, I know he exists, but there isn't enough proof. How can you know he exists if there's not enough? Anyway, he was wise. He was enlightened. He saw things that normal people didn't see. You know, I believe Jesus is saving people to his paradise, but that doesn't make any of the other religions any less right. People said, One person interviewed, this was the shocking one, 
they actually appeared to get all the answers right. They knew who Jesus was and is. They spoke the right words. They called him the son of God. They said he died for sinners. And then when the interviewer asked them, oh, so do you believe in him? Is he your Lord over your life? And they said, nope. But they got all the answers right. It's incredibly important that we understand who Christ is, who Jesus is, that he is preeminent over all things and what he has accomplished, right? So what are we studying here? The preeminence of Christ in him, by him, through him, and for him. So number one, Jesus Christ is God, the supreme over all creation, the supreme over all creation. And number two, Jesus Christ is God, the sustainer of all creation. He sustains all creation. And number three, God is supreme over all the church, over all the church. So if you'd stand with me in honor of the reading of the word, we'll read this passage together. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20, Paul writing to the church in Colossae, he says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the knowledge, the wisdom that you've given to us in your word of who Christ is, who Jesus truly was. You did not leave us in the dark on this issue. You have revealed it in your holy scripture. But to many in the world, it is still masked, Lord. It is still veiled. It is still hidden. Lord, please open our ears and our eyes as we study this passage together. Help us to uh, understand, and I pray that it would encourage us and give us fuel to tell others of this Christ, who he is. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Can you all still hear me okay? Good? All right. So... Why is Paul writing this? Why does he start off this way at the very beginning of this letter in Colossians? It seems he's opening up with quite a profound statement, isn't he? We see in this passage here, just these five verses in Paul's usual run-on, super long sentence style, right? A profound declaration on the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ over what? All things. And the Apostle Paul is under house arrest at this time, if you recall. And he's received news about the church in Colossae, right? Uh, we are told of Epaphras 
in um, the earlier part of the chapter. And Epaphras has informed Paul about their faith at this church. He speaks of their love for all the saints. Those are some good positive words about a church. Quite different from what we find in Corinthians, right? But he has also been informed, Paul has been informed of false teachers who have promoted error about the person and work of Christ. They preached and they claimed that Jesus was prominent, yes, but not preeminent. Jesus was just one of many angelic emanations of God, if you will. And in the process, they ultimately denied what this passage says here. They denied both the true deity and the true humanity of Christ. So this error opened the door to confusions about the gospel, the church, and the person of Christ. Right, And they have infiltrated the church. This error has infiltrated. And these errors were typically not promoted to to rival Christ, to come against him. Some of them were, but many times they were presented alongside of Christ. To add to Christ, as if Christ is not enough. Right? So this would dilute the pure understanding of who Christ was. And he is this false teaching. So Paul writes this letter to the church, exalting the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. So verse 15 through 20, he's beginning the main body of this letter and he lays the foundation for all the crucial arguments that will follow throughout this short letter. Paul greets the saints in verses one and two. He thanks God for the church, verses three through eight. And then he prays for them, verses 9 through 14. And then in 15, he begins the heart of the matter after his introduction. And he starts with a declaration of truth rather than a refutation of error. He just declares, this is what it is. This is the truth. Rather than taking time to go through each and every false teaching and dealing with each one individually, he just says, I'm going to proclaim what the truth really is. So reading and understanding this text should result for the believer in worship, right? Exaltation, worship should overflow from a knowledge of the truths that we find here in this passage and in this chapter. I love this quote from H.B. Uh, Charles Jr. He's a great, great preacher. He said, this text helps us summarize Christianity in seven words. Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. Seven words. I thought, well, that's a wonderful synopsis. Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. What a great way we can summarize Christianity, right? So as we hop into this passage, we see that all things are in him, by him, and through him, and for him. So as I mentioned, number one, Jesus Christ is supreme over what? All creation, supreme. So verse 15, he begins with two great affirmations. First, he aligns himself with the consistent teaching of Scripture that God is invisible, right? We see that here. He is the image of the invisible God. We see in John 4.24 the same thing where Jesus states that God is spirit, 
right? We see the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he writes, He is the immortal and invisible God. Same thing. And again, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, John states, No one has ever seen God. No one. Now, we know that, that God does occasionally present himself in a, in a visible theophany, right? Throughout scripture, the burning bush to Moses, for instance, and things of that nature. But his essential nature, what we would call essential nature, has never been seen. He is invisible. And Paul affirms that here. But Paul affirms also the, the second thing, second great affirmation, that Jesus is the visible image of this invisible God. The visible image. This Greek word image is the term from which we get our word icon. Icon. It means the representation or the manifestation of a thing. Right? It's where we get that word. So we see in Exodus 20, for incident, for in, instance, not to make any carved image of God. Right? That's it's the same word. It's the same usage. So nothing that man creates, we need to understand, nothing that man can carve or paint or create in any way can ever fully or faithfully <clears throat> represent God. Nothing can, right? That's why we are urged against making such images. But we are also told in Genesis that man was made in the image of God, right? We are made with what? A personhood, a mind and a will and emotions, right? We're made in the image of God. But we need to make sure we understand that terminology rightly, right? When we're talking about us being made in the image of God compared to Christ being the, the image of the invisible God, right? So we are made in the image of God, but we are not perfectly like God, right? Humanity does not perfectly, fully represent the image of God. That is, we do not share God's incommunicable attributes, right? We are not omniscient. We are not omnipresent. He is immutable, unchangeable, omnipotent. His eternality, we do not possess that in and of ourselves, right? apart from him granting us eternal life in the final glorified state, right? We do not share God's image morally either, right? God is holy and we are not. God has made his decisions. He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass in his purposes throughout time and throughout history, uh, he is completely independent of any outside influence, right? We cannot do this, however. We cannot make decisions apart from any outside influence. We are bound. We are, our, our wills and our decisions are limited by what? Our fallen human sinful nature. We are not able to make decisions such as God does. He is uh, he alone is completely free and autonomous, right? To do whatever he pleases. Autonomous being a law unto oneself. We are not like this. He does whatever he pleases. We cannot. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are slaves to sin, Scripture says. We're born dead in our sins and trespasses, right? But there is one who truly, perfectly, fully represents God, essentially and morally. Verse 15 says, He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. There is one. In John 1.18, John uses the word to describe Christ from which we get the word exegesis. If you've heard that word, to exegete scripture. It's we do exegesis out of the scripture when we preach and when we teach. It means to pull out all of the the essential God-intended meaning out of the text. That's what exegesis means, rather than imposing human understanding onto or into the text. That's eisegesis, right? So Paul, or excuse me, John uses that word, exegesis, to describe Jesus. How cool is that? Jesus is the exegesis of God. He explains God. He gives clarity and meaning to God that had not been fully revealed before in the Old Testament, right? Not fully revealed. So if you want to know what God looks like, just look at Jesus, is what the scriptures proclaim to us. He is the radiance of his glory, says Hebrews 1. He represents God and he manifests God perfectly to the world. Amen. And in the upper room, Philip, he asks Jesus, well, there's been a lot of talk about this father stuff. Why don't you show us the father? He says, show us who he is. And in John 14, Jesus explained, Philip, you silly, silly man. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. He is the image of the invisible God. Do you see the profound nature of what's being said here? This reveals incredible things about Christ, which are denied by practically every other religion in the world. Or I'll just say every other religion in the world, not practically. But even many professing evangelical Christians are so confused, right, on the nature and the person of Christ. They're very confused. It seems that many in the church are discombobulated about Jesus and who he is. Uh, Ligonier Ministries, a, a wonderful godly ministry that I follow, uh, puts out a survey every two years. They put out one in 2018 and they put one out this year in 2020. And the results, many of them are shocking. Shocking. These were These were professing evangelicals. Keep that in your mind. But the survey that they put out called the State of Theology, 30% agreed with this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 30%. And 42% of professing, and you notice I'm being very careful to say professing evangelicals, just because you say, Lord, Lord, right? 42%, almost half, of professing evangelicals agree, God accepts the worship of all religions, including but not limited to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. He accepts all their worship, 
Thankfully, this figure is actually down a little bit. It was 51% in 2018. And in 2018, 91%, this is a good one, 91% of professing evangelicals agreed with this statement. God counts a person as righteous not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Christ. 91%. That's pretty good. But sadly, just two years later, this figure has dropped by 7%. Now only 84%. Still majority, right? But we should notice, we should take notice of a 7% drop on the foundational doctrine of our justification. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Romans 5, 84%. And this one's the, this is the kicker. This is the really sad one. 65%, 65 agree with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Did you catch it? The first and greatest being created by God. This is what's astounding and incredibly sad. 65%. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Did you know that? This is actually, this quote that they use in the survey, this is literally directly out of the Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower doctrine. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. He is not the creator. And this is on par with Mormonism as well, of course, because Jesus is a created sexual offspring from Elohim, Father God, Heavenly Father, and one of his many, many blonde goddess wives, right? It's on par. See, if you read and you study and understand your Bible, if you believe what the infallible word of God really says, then you know that Jesus himself is God in the flesh. He is creator God. He is supreme over all things. Paul continues here in verse 15, and he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Well, this is where Jehovah's Witnesses and other worldly cults use, rather misuse this text and others to try and teach that Jesus was, what, the first greatest, quote-unquote, thing that God created. They misuse this text. They twist it just a little bit. But see, we have to, this is why exegesis, like I said earlier, is so important. This is why our hermeneutic, the act of interpreting the scriptures accurately, is so important. Scripture interprets scripture to make that claim that Jesus is a created being based on this one verse would be for Paul to agree with the false teachers that he's writing this text to refute. It would contradict itself. Not only that, but the idea that this single verse, ripped out of context, by the way, the idea that this single verse teaches that Jesus is a created being flatly disagrees with the next four verses. Read on, Jehovah's Witnesses. Read on. How can the fullness of God dwell in a created being? As verse 19 tells us. Just a few verses later. The fullness of God. Can the fullness of God dwell in a created being? No. 
But this is always the, the practice of cults and false religions. Number one, they, they edit, right? Edit or rip verses out of context to what? Push a narrative, push an ideology, right? We see that in what happened down in Waco, for instance, and the instance with um, the, uh, the drink the Kool-Aid cult. I don't know what else to call it. You know, um, they all do this. This is the practice of any cult. Number one, edit and rip verses out of context to push a narrative. And number two, they distort the person, work, or deity of Christ. Those are the, the two main practices of any cult. Any world religion is those two things most often. But pushing that idea that Jesus Christ is a created being and only a created being disagrees with all the verses immediately following verse 15. How could Christ be a created being if by him all things were created? Verse 16. By him all things were created. Well, see, they get around that, they being the Jehovah's Witnesses. And this is not a Jehovah's Witness sermon today. I know it's just very applicable to this text, extremely applicable. They get around that by doing what? Number one of what I said earlier, they edit the text. See, their text, the Jehovah's Witness text, the NWT, New World Translation, says, pay attention, verse 16, by him all other things were created. Do you see that? Other, all other things, not all things, because that can't be possible. That doesn't fit the narrative. It's amazing what one word can do to the deity and the person of Christ. But guess what? That word uh, other that they insert into the text, it's not in the Greek text. Nor is it, nor does it exist in any manuscript ever. Ever. They made it up. Why? Because it doesn't fit their narrative. It doesn't fit the narrative. So this word used for firstborn, we need to unpack this. We need to understand what is actually being said here, right? Otherwise, how can we refute such things? The word used here, firstborn, does not literally mean first created or first in order. Right, Because in that regard, Cain would be the firstborn of creation. Do you see? This does not mean first in order. It does not refer to chronology. What this word usage in the Greek actually means is first in rank. First in rank is what this means. Or you could say first in rule. Right, This is the same language that's actually used in Exodus chapter 4, where God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. All right, it's the same type of language, meaning first in rank at that time, showing the special divine favor that they had among the nations with God, special favor with God. And in Psalms, the Lord said to David that he will make a king who will be the firstborn, meaning higher than all the other kings. Do you see? First in rank. And then Paul uses the term the same way here to speak of rank. He says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. So the false teachers of that time and still today are claiming that Jesus is just another emanation of God, a 
created representation or representative, I should say, of God. But Paul refutes that and he says, no, Jesus is Lord over all creation, firstborn, first in rank, over all. You see, if Jesus truly is the incarnate God, the second person of the Trinity, the righteous judge, the perfect lamb, then he can't fit into these other narratives. He doesn't fit. He can't be just a historical figure or a David Copperfield, like we said earlier, or a marketing genius, or Michael the Archangel, Jehovah's Witnesses, or a mere example of a God that you can become one day, Mormonism. He doesn't fit the narrative, if you believe what the scripture is actually saying here. See, if you have the wrong Jesus, it's a Jesus who is not Lord. It's a Jesus that you don't have to submit to. It's a Jesus that you don't have to bow your knee to, right? The world doesn't want that Jesus. The world doesn't want the one who is the image of the invisible God. The world wants an image of their own making right? As I've said before, and this statement always throws people off at first, and then I recover. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You must believe in the right Jesus. The right Jesus. He is supreme ruler, owner, and creator over all creation. Amen? So number two, he is, Jesus is God, the sustainer of all things, sustainer of all things. You see, when you read verse 16, it actually explains verse 15. That's why I said, read on Jehovah's Witnesses and others. Verse 16 actually shows us the, what's called the threefold relationship Jesus has to his creation by him, through him, and for him, right? by, through, and for. So we find that Jesus is what? The source of creation. The source of creation. He says, for by him, all things were created. He flung the stars into space. He scooped the waters out from the deep. He stacked the mountains. His imprint is literally on every object, everything in the physical world everything. Paul refers to what? Things on earth, right? On earth, which are visible. Visible. So Jesus created everything physical. That's what we see here, right? Physical. Everything visible, seen by the human eye. But also, Jesus created the spiritual world as well, right? This is what Paul means when he says, things in heaven and things invisible in this same passage, in heaven and invisible. And he even gives us four categories. Now, he doesn't go into a deep exposition of what he means by all these four categories specifically, but he says thrones, rulers, dominions, and authorities. Whatever all those things specifically mean, guess what? Jesus made all of them. All of them. He is the creator of everything physical and spiritual, everything seen and everything unseen, including unseen spiritual beings. There is a spiritual world around us 
underneath us, above us, around us that we cannot see. Even all the wicked angelic beings aligned with Satan and his wicked initiatives, they all must submit and bow to the authority of Christ. Even they are created for a purpose, for a time, but they submit to the authority of our God. He's not only the sustainer of all things, but he is the agent, we're told, of creation. He's the agent. What do we mean? So all things were created, he says, through him and for him. Through him and for him. That is the end of verse 16 there. So not only does he sustain all things that were created, but those things literally would not have been created in the first place apart from him. He's the agent of creation as well as the sustainer. John confirms the same in John chapter 1, that beautiful chapter, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 3 in that passage confirms the same thing here in Colossians, he created all things, and without him there was nothing that was made. John 1, 3, right? And then verse 16 here in Colossians 1 makes clear that all things were made, furthermore, to glorify him. To glorify him. That's what we mean when we say for him. So through him, he is the agent, and for him. Everything is to glorify him. It's for him. It's not for us. Now, we may have some, some indirect uh, benefits from creation, right? We get to enjoy beautiful things on this earth. We get to experience love and relationships and, and peace and excitement and all everything else that comes along with life. So we reap certain benefits from being a part of creation, but it's not for us. It's for him and for his glory. Through him and for him, all things that were made were created for his purposes, scripture says, his pleasure, his praise, his glory, right? But And then verse 17, he goes on and he tells us that he is before all things. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. You see this repetitive phrasing. Do you think they're getting tired of it in the church at Colossae? All things, all things, all things, all things. It's like he's working up a crescendo, you know. He is before all things. So not only do we see that Jesus is first in rank, right? But also there is a certain sense of time, I think, in this phrase as well. He's before all things. What did Jesus say in John chapter 8? Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, right? I am. They knew what he was saying in that chapter, right? They knew exactly what he was saying. They being the religious leaders, various Pharisees and Sadducees and, and other Jews that within that group, they knew what he was saying. They knew what he was claiming. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. They called him a blasphemer, right? Jesus was a heretic in his own world. 
They knew exactly what he was saying. So when you hear people say th ridiculous things like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Look at John 8. The reason they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was claiming when he said, I am. It's the same language used of Yahweh God in the Old Testament. I am who I am, right? So we see Jesus is the sustainer of all things, and he is the reason, he is the power, he is the almighty glue, if you will, that holds all things together. Verse 17. So apart from him, what this means is everything would literally fall apart. Everything would cease to exist. Hebrews 1 verse 3 also tells us that he upholds the universe or all things, depending on your translation there, by the word of his power. You know that verse? Upholds all things, the universe, by the word of his power. It would take but a word for him to wipe out the universe, to wipe out all of creation. You cannot breathe, you cannot wake up, you cannot live, move, or do anything apart from his gracious permission, can you? Isn't that amazing? Paul confirmed the same, actually, when he spoke to the men of Athens, right, regarding their inscription to the unknown God. Do you remember that? And he explained to them, who is this God of the universe? And he said, in him we live and move and we have our entire being. In him. All it would take for you to die, for your heart to stop beating, for your lungs to stop functioning, would be for God to simply stop upholding you by the word of his power. And the same goes for kings and rulers and nations and the entire universe. That is our God. That is our God. He is supreme king over all creation. Because he created the world and he sustains the world. The entire cosmos, as John says. It's incredible. You see, although scientists and atheistic naturalists, materialists, that's a lot of ists, you know, they will continue to argue and they try to come up with complex, convoluted theories as to why the laws of physics work. We know that they work. Why do they work? And why our cosmos is so perfectly ordered. They cannot explain why our cosmos is not just overcome by chaos at some point. Why? Will things continue to operate in the way they always have in the cosmos? They don't know. Maybe. Shrug. Yeah. Why is Earth just close enough to the sun that we don't freeze, but just far enough away that we don't burn and become fried eggs and hash browns? Hmm? Why does the sun continue to rise in the east and set in the west while Earth maintains its perfect axis around the sun? Why does Earth continue to rotate and bring the seasons all throughout time? They have no basis. 
They have no trust, no consistent what we call worldview that tells them that these things will continue to happen. They have no basis, no trust. As far as they're concerned, we could just descend into chaos at any moment. But somehow these laws of physics just continue working. But we do. We do have reason. We do know because Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, is holding all things together. One verse explains that. Number three, I'll close out with this final point here. Verse 18 then goes on and tells us that Jesus is the head of the body, the head of the church. What is a body without its head? Nothing. It's dead. Now a chicken, you know what I'm about to say, if you ever see it run around and flap violently, you know, for a minute or so after its head has been chopped off, right? It appears to be alive, right? It, it appears to be so. But there is no order to its movement, right? There's no order to it, no direction. It's chaos. The scientists would love that, right? It's chaos. There is no purpose or plan to its movement after its head has been cut off. There's no purpose before the life drains from that chicken's nervous system, right? No purpose to it. So it is with the church. A church who does not have Christ as its head is either a dead church or a church in chaos on its way to death. It's a ship without a rudder. It's a ship without sails, without a captain, right? Tossed to and fro by what? Every wind of doctrine. We're told he is the firstborn from the dead. The only one who has conquered death. The only one who is not subject to death. Revelation 1, he declares, I am the first and the last, the living one, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. He holds it all. This is the second reference you might have noticed in this text to what? Firstborn. We already talked about that. Firstborn. Again, this is about his rank, not chronology. He is first in rank over all things, living and dead. He himself raised at least three people from the dead, right? That we're told about in scripture. But these were more like resuscitations, right? rather than resurrections in the truest sense, right? Lazarus was raised, but he died again. That must have been terrible to approach. I'm going to go do this all over again. But Jesus raised himself through his power from the grave, and he lives forevermore. Forevermore. That in what? Everything, verse 18, he may be preeminent. Preeminent. What does this mean? Well, preeminent means to surpass all others. It means to be uniquely distinguished in some way. And he was unique. He was. Why? Verse 19, because all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him bodily. All the fullness of God. So because of this authority 
that Jesus Christ has and his preeminence over everything, he is what? Our head over the church. He is supreme over the church. He is our ruler. He is our king. For what purpose? Verse 20. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the purpose. What a beautiful passage here. Just five verses. You see, he is accomplishing his eternal purposes in and through his church. Isn't that amazing? We get to participate somehow. We get to be a part of his eternal purposes through what? The teaching and the preaching and the proclamation of his gospel. Isn't that amazing? He's calling all of his sheep to himself, right? Over time, he's the prince of peace. Go sit down, buddy. Okay. You can sit right there. Come on. <laughs> he's the prince of peace. And he brings his sheep into peace with God by his blood, right? Romans 5, where therefore we have been justified before God, declared righteous before a holy God. What a privilege that we get just to merely participate in the purposes of God. He doesn't need us. He could proclaim it from a thunderous shout and a trumpet from heaven if he wanted to, but he chooses to use us. He chooses to. He's accomplishing his pur purposes perfectly through us imperfect sinners. Isn't that incredible? So in closing here, the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ is obviously of utmost importance, isn't it? It's important to know who he is and what he has done because the world is so confused. Jesus, God Almighty, is supreme over all creation. He's the sustainer of all creation and he is supreme over all the church, his body. And because he is supreme over all, there is therefore nothing lacking in our salvation either. We are complete in him. Jesus is everything we need. He will accomplish his purposes, scripture says, and he chooses to involve us. He allows us to participate. Like we already said, he doesn't need us. But he uses us. Why? He, and he will accomplish all of his good pleasure, Scripture says in Isaiah. I grow so tired of the language that you hear throughout our churches where you hear people say, well, if you don't do this thing, people might not be saved. Or if people might miss out or people might miss their chance if you don't, if you, if you. I'm sorry, as if God can fail? To save those whom he has ordained to save, he will not fail. He graciously chooses to use us as well in his purposes. The proclamation of the gospel, and it's amazing that he uses us, his church, as the means through which the gospel will be proclaimed. And through that gospel, eyes and ears 
will be opened. Hearts of stone will be turned to flesh. Souls will be regenerated and raised to spiritual life. Wicked sinners will be made into new creations and the guilty will be what? Justified, counted as righteous before a holy God because of your righteousness? No, because of Jesus and his righteousness given to us that we don't deserve all through what? His gospel, for it is what? The power of God unto salvation. So do you believe his gospel? Do you believe it? Do you proclaim his gospel? And if not, what are you waiting for? He's in control. You're not. He's in control over the results. It is in his power to change hearts and to save, right? Not yours. So what are we waiting for? So may we trust him and boldly declare the glorious truth of who Christ is to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Well, gracious Lord, we thank you and and love you. Father, we thank you for your word. It is life to us. It is such a blessing to read your truth, to participate in your purposes, Father. We don't deserve it, but God, you graciously choose to use us. You Choose to make us your instruments, as you said of Saul, of Tarsus, who became Paul. God, please use us. Please give us boldness. Please give us the desire to serve you and proclaim your gospel, God. Give us strength in this dark world. Help us to please you in our obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.